If you got your Bibles, and I pray that you do, <clears throat> let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. We're going to be picking up on uh, where I left off last week. I know I told you that I was going to um, be preaching on the spiritual discipline of fasting, and I still plan on doing that. I guess what I should have said last week is, if the Lord wills, I will preach on fasting this week. <laughs> but um, but that is not the that's not the way I felt like that was best for us this morning. Um, with the kids being baptized and with the uh, the gospel being presented and people uh, responding to it, we had two baptisms last week, four baptisms this week. I just felt like you know why why stop it? So um, so we're going to continue on. Um, uh, if one more, at least one more week in Isaiah, and we'll see where we, where we go from there next week. But um, I want to remind you that if you weren't here last, or, or if you were here last week, I remind you, if you weren't here last week, just to give you a little bit of context, is that this is a group of people that are in Babylonian captivity. The holy city of Jerusalem and Zion has been burned to the ground, turned into a wilderness, in um, Isaiah chapter 62 through 64, basically you have a prayer that's being prayed by this group. And they're saying things like, God, where are you at? Um, God, why are you restraining yourself? Do you not see that our holy temple is burned to the ground? Your great house is burned to the ground. God, do you not see that your holy city has become a wilderness? God, where are you in our darkness? And why won't you come and save us? And God has to answer that prayer, but I want to show you just a little bit. I didn't give, um, give them upstairs these verses, but if you have your Bible, go ahead and look at Isaiah 63, verse 15 to 16, just for a part of this prayer, so you see what I'm talking about here. Isaiah 63, verse 15 through 16, and look what he says here. This is the people praying to God, remember. And they're saying, Look down from heaven, Lord, and see. Look down from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? Where are the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion that are held back from me? And then verse 16, For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel, or Jacob, does not acknowledge us. In other words, they were looking at the state that they were in, the sin that they were in, the reason why they were in the place that they were. God had been uh, crying out to him through the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah. And he had been pouring his heart out to him to return to him, return to him, come out of your sin and come back home. And yet they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't answer when God called, they wouldn't follow God. And so here God is listening to this group of people that says, God, I'm your child, we're your children. Even though Abraham don't know us, Abraham the patriarch, the father of their nation, right? He said, Abraham don't know us. Jacob, his grandson, don't know us. And here's what he says next. But you, O Lord, are what? Are our Father. In other words, they claim to be children of God, right? But how many of you know, again, from last week, if you were here, you know, just because you claim to be a child of God, does that make you a child of God? No. And you're going to see that here in just a few minutes. You can claim whatever you want to claim. You can say whatever you want to say, but that does not make it true. 
And so they pray and they say, Lord, you are our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. And then look at Isaiah 64, verse um, 11, or verse 10 through 12, and you'll see how we get into Isaiah 65. This is the end of their prayer. Isaiah 64, verse 10 through 12. He says, Your holy cities have become a wilderness, God. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem has become a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned with fire. And all of our pleasant places have become ruins. And then look at verse 12. Here's the last question they give God. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So you see their prayer? So God has to answer this. Is God going to restrain Himself from His children? Is God going to stay silent while His children are in darkness and in suffering the way that they are? And here's God's answer in Isaiah 65. Look at verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. So here's what he says. You're not my children, you're rebels. You are rebellious people. And notice what what makes them rebels. Who walk in a way that is not good, follow their own devices or the imaginations of their own hearts, and they are a people who provoke me continually to my face. And then if you were to keep on reading, he would say, you are a smoke in my nostrils. You know what smoke does to nostrils? Irritates, burns. And he said it's like a fire that burns all day long. The irritation never stops. And then God says to them, well, here's what I'm going to do to you. If you skip down with me to verse 12, this is where we pick up today. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. And here's why. Because when I called, you what? Remember, the prophets and the preachers have been coming. They have preached the Word of God to these people to repent, to turn away from these sins, to come back, to to worship God in spirit and in truth. And yet they continue to go out and live for their own imaginations, follow their own ways. They don't walk in a way that is good. They don't choose the things that are pleasing to God. And God says, you can't be my children and my servants living this life. So the question is, God, are you going to restrain yourself? Yeah, for the time being. But it ain't because I don't want to destroy you. Because truth of the matter is, in your sin, that's exactly what I would do. But I still want to give you time to repent. I still want to give you time to turn this thing around. And so he says, if you don't, I'm going to destine you to the sword. I'm going to cause you to bow bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. Look what he says next. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. So here's the point. True children of God answer when God calls. True children of God, listen when God speaks. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times in children of God's lives where we fall into sin, even great failures. I mean, look at David, look at Moses, look at, go on, look at Noah even after he got off the ark. I mean, yes, we still fall into terrible choices sometimes. But a true child of God is not just going to have a lifestyle and a practicing of unrighteousness in their life. 
The true child of God has a heart and a desire to answer God, to listen to God, to follow God. And yes, there are times that they step away from that and that they fall terribly, but the true child of God can't get away from that heart that draws him back to God. And so here we have these group of people that will not answer, will not listen, will not follow, and they claim themselves to belong to God. And God says here, no. Matter of fact, unless you turn this thing around, you're going to be destined for the sword. You're going to be destined for the slaughter. So I want you to remember here that basically the ones that get this call from God, if you remember from Isaiah 61, the ones that get this call from God are the ones that are poor in spirit. You remember that? He said, I came to proclaim good news to the poor. The ones that get this good news and this call of God to answer... They are the ones that are brokenhearted over their sin. They are captive in their sin condition. They recognize that they're oppressed by the sin in their life and they seek God for deliverance and for salvation. And the Bible says that God proclaims good news to them, that He actually gives them the gospel. This is the reason why in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 14, the Apostle Peter tells us to make our call and election sure. You can't answer the call of God if you ain't heard the call of God. And the only ones that get the call of God are the ones that are poor in spirit, that are broken hearted, that are held captive in their sin, and they recognize that they are hopeless. They're like this man that stood at the temple with the other, with the other Pharisees. The ta- uh, he may have been a tax collector if I remember right. But he stands there and he just beats his breast. He won't even look up at heaven. He says, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. You remember what Jesus said about that man? He went home to his house justified. Why? Because he was poor in spirit. And he heard the call of God. And he cried out to God for that forgiveness and that salvation. And God did that. But but Peter tells us again in um, 2 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 10. Pull that back up for me, Riley, if you would. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm what? Your calling and your election. Be all the more diligent to confirm that you have been called by God and that you have been chosen by God to be one of His. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, he lays out that we need to add to our faith virtue. And we need to add to our virtue self-control. And we need to add to our self-control perseverance. In other words, we're producing fruit for God. Do you understand that? And he says here that if you follow these things, and it all begins with faith. Again, go back and look at this. If you follow these things, you will never fall. Why? Because the evidence of God being alive in you, of Jesus Christ being in your heart and in your life, is there. And so move to the next verse with me in in verse 11. For in this way, in what way? In the way of adding to your faith, which is the foundation of which we are saved. Add to the faith virtue, add to the virtue self-control, add to the self-control perseverance, add to perseverance godliness, so on and so on. He says, for in this way there will be provided for you richly an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Alright, keep going with me to verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. You see that? 
Peter said, I'm going to make sure that I'm preaching to you about growing in your faith and about producing fruit for God. I don't want you to be the kind of Christian that your calling and your election is not sure. I want you to be able to look at your life and I want you to be able to see the evidence that is there that you are indeed producing fruit for God. And he says, I will always remind you of these qualities even though you what? Peter said, I don't care if you've heard this message a hundred times, a thousand times. Guess what? Hear it again. He said, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and even are established in the truth that you have. And they go to verse 13. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So this stirs you up, right? And then go to verse 14. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So again, the point being is this. Peter said, I know I'm fixing to die. But I'm going to make sure that you have a reminder of this kind of life as long as I can remind you of this because I want to stir you up to make sure that you understand if you are not practicing righteousness in your life, you have reason to question your call, and your election. So how do you confirm that? You confirm it by recognizing that God is at work in your life and that He is drawing you to Him, that He is calling you out of darkness into the light, and that you are practicing righteousness in your life. The true fruit of a born-again believer will always be repentance. Now again, I ain't saying that a Christian cannot have flaws, major flaws in their life. But a true Christian will never have final, fatal flaws in their life. The Apostle Peter, you remember what Jesus said to him? You're going to deny me three times. But when you have returned, you remember that? But when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Let me tell you something, if you are living a life as a Christian today that is just constantly pursuing unrighteousness, you're walking in your own path, not choosing the things God delights in, not answering the call of God, not listening to the Word of God, not following God in His Spirit, I'm telling you this morning, I'm trying to stir you up to question one of two things. Either you do not know the Lord God and He has not called you and you have not been delivered from darkness into His light, or you need to repent. You need to turn your life around and you need to come back to Him because you have a desire in you to answer His call, to listen to Him. And that's the difference between rebels and servants here. That's the difference between the true children of God and the false children of God here. And we see it in this context right here. And so one of the things that we see is that the true servants answer the call of God. The true servants listen when God speaks. The true servants choose to do what is good and what God delights in. And when they don't do those things, it lays heavy on them. It lays heavy on them. And the Holy Spirit is working on them and drawing them. And the Holy Spirit is always... And this is why the Bible tells us, don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Because He is working in you to produce fruit for God. And that is what we should be able to see in our lives. So first off, let's look this morning at the rebel's punishment. 
the rebel's punishment. Verse 13 through 25. Look at how he goes down through here starting in verse, 35, starting in verse 13 of Isaiah 65. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, or my children are going to eat, but you shall be hungry. And you'll see this theme going down through there. This is what the true children are going to get, the servants are going to get. This is what you, the rebels that you call out and say, I'm your father. You say that, 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 that you're one of mine. But let me tell you something. You're not. Here's the evidence of why you're not. And here's what's going to happen. So look at the punishment. So let's skip over the my servant shall. Let's just look at the but you's in this. So the rebels are going to be hungry. The rebels are going to be thirsty. The rebels are going to be put to shame. And this is a condition of, of humiliation. That, that takes place in their life. The rebels are going to cry out for pain of heart. The rebels are going to wail for pain of spirit. And if you were to go over to the, the next chapter, Isaiah 66 continues this theme, and you were to look at the very last verse, the rebels are also going to, their worm is never going to die. The maggots will never die as it eats the body. The fire will never be quenched. This is the punishment that the rebels will receive. There are three things about this punishment that I want you to see very quickly. The first thing is that this is an eternal punishment. See, there are many, many theologians today that have wrote books after books about how there's only going to be a sufficient amount of time for you to actually pay for your sin in this place of torment. And then you'll just come out of it and you'll either go to heaven with the rest of the people or there are some that believe that, the, that hell is really just a place of the dead where there's no real torment, you just no longer exist. Those are not things that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that this punishment for rebels is going to be eternal. You have offended with your sin an eternal being. How long does it take to pay for an offense committed against an infinitely eternal being? The higher the person, the greater the offense, right? Is there anybody or anyone higher than an eternal holy God? It will take an eternity. Let me show you just a few scriptures to prove that to you. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 first. Matthew 25 verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into what? Eternal fire. You see that? Now go with me to Matthew 25 verse 46. See what Jesus taught about it. And these will go away into what? So we're looking at fire that is eternal. We're looking for punishment that is eternal. But on the other side of it, righteousness shall go into eternal life. Alright, look at another scripture. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 through 9. And to grant relief to all those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, and look at what happens next, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and they will suffer the punishment of what? Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Look at Revelation chapter 14 verse 11 and I'm only picking out a handful, okay? But do you get the point so far? This 
punishment, this torment that the rebels are going to receive is not temporary. Guys, I'm telling you, this will never end. My mind can't even fathom that. I, I don't know if you can or not. But notice what he says here. And the smoke of their what? Their torment goes up how long? I could go do this all day long. The point is this. There are too many preachers that are standing in pulpits this, this very morning and they are not preaching hell is hot. And they are not preaching that hell is eternal. They are not preaching that it is torment and that it will never end. And that's a sad thing. Because you don't understand your need for the gospel if you don't see this. Those are just a few scriptures that I would point out for that. Another thing that I would point out is that it is not only eternal, it is unimaginable, the suffering that will be experienced there. I want you to think about, for just a minute, the worst moment in your life. The worst time in your life. The time in your life where the truth of the matter is, you really would have been just better off sometimes just dead. You couldn't imagine pain, or you couldn't imagine suffering worse than what you were in in that time. And I want you to understand, even that is only a glimpse, just a glimpse of what the eternal torment is actually going to be like. Let me show you a few scriptures to show you the, how unimaginable it is. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 41 and 42. And Jesus took this right out of um, Isaiah 66. But He said, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be what? Now I want you to understand. I do believe this literally. I do believe that just like we're given a body for eternal life that will never die, that will never experience pain, that will never experience sorrow, I believe on the opposite side that the dead will be resurrected unto eternal death as well. And they will be given a body that will be fitted for eternal torment that will always die and yet never die. Always be in pain, and yet it will only increase to the point that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And even though I believe this as a literal translation, I also believe that spiritually we can see this as just a picture because it can't even really be described, the torment that is going to be experienced. And so he uses images, he uses symbols, if you will, to try to show you the significance of this eternal torment. And so he says there will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth. The torment will be so bad that that's the only way that you can actually picture it, and even that doesn't bring it to the level of what it's going to be. Let me look at another scripture to show you what I'm talking about, show you some other symbols. Look with me at, um, if you would, at Matthew 24, verse 50 through 51. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will what? Cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing. You see the picture he points out here? It will be like being cut into pieces. Let me show you another picture of what he talks about of this suffering. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 through 12. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Here he's talking about the Jews. While the sons, the Jews of, uh, of the kingdom, will be thrown into, here's another picture, outer darkness. So yes, it's described as a fiery furnace. Yes, it's described like being cut into pieces. And now we're being described as outer darkness. Literally so dark that you cannot see your hand in front of your face. And how many of you, how many of you in here are still scared of the dark? Come on, come on. I got a few of y'all in here. Y'all know that whenever you get ready to go to bed, you try to beat the light going off to get back into bed. Uh-huh. You ain't got to admit it to me. I know the truth. The point being is this. Darkness is not our friend. We don't like darkness. We like the light. We like to be able to see what's going on. All of these things are just pictures that show us that the suffering and the torment that is going to be experienced in the punishment of the rebels is unimaginable. And the only way you can imagine it is by looking at the, the, the worst symbols that we can find of torment. And that's the way that you're going to experience. Look at just a, a few more. Um, Isaiah 66 verse 24. I'll stop with this one. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And there again, I do believe literally this will take place, and I also believe symbolically it is talking about the fact that it's almost as if you, even though your body is dead, the worms are eating it, but the worms never die. They're always eating it. And even though it's burning and it's in fire, the fire will never be quenched. And I can't imagine that kind of torment. And I'm just going to be honest with you. That scares the living daylights out of me. Not for myself anymore. Because I know in whom I have believed. I know the fruit that is in my life that I see that do I still sin? You better believe I still sin. But I hate my sin. And I repent from my sin. And I turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in my sin. And I trust Him that He has forgiven me of all of my sin. So it doesn't cause me fear because I'm worried about my eternal destination. But I have a lot of people that I love. That the truth of the matter is, they either don't really know this or they do not believe this. And if I believe this, that causes me great concern for them. And so, it concerns me greatly that there are many people that I know that are rebels of the Lord God Almighty and this is the punishment that God promises they are going to receive. Move with me if you would to the uh, to, uh, last thing. It's going to be justified. Last thing about this punishment, it's going to be justified. Um, it is going to be a punishment that is worthy of the offense. There's a lot of people that don't believe in hell and don't believe in this eternal torment because they don't think the punishment fits the crime. The punishment absolutely fits the crime. As I said before, God made you through Him and for Him. You were created for His glory, for His purpose, and yet you chose to follow your own way, follow your own heart and your own imagination. And you better believe when you offend an eternal creation like that, that master potter has every right to take that clay pot and completely destroy it. 
He has every right to do that, and it is going to be justifiable. Let's look next at the servant's reward. All right, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 13 again. My servants shall eat. They're not going to be hungry. My servants shall drink. My servants shall rejoice. My servants are going to sing for gladness of heart. My servants are going to have an everlasting name that will never be cut off. And the reason they are going to have these things is not because they weren't sinners as well. It's not because they weren't rebels all the same. The only difference is because they heard the call of God and they answered. They listened to the Word of God and they followed. And the evidence of being called and elect by God was evident in their life. And as a result of that, they knew, not because I'm working my way into heaven, but because I see the evidence that Christ is in me. This is the reason why the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul had been talking to them about the sin in their life and that he was coming to them. And if you don't repent, it's not going to be a pretty visit. And then he says to them, you need to examine yourselves. To do what, Paul? To see whether you are in the faith. Because the evidence is lacking, is what he says. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you what? You actually fail to meet the test. The evidence of genuine faith is that you look at your life and you see Jesus is in me. How do I see that? Because He's changing my heart. He's changing my mind. He's teaching me His ways. I'm learning from Him. I'm following His ways. I trust Him above every, every, everything else in the world. Anybody tracking with me this morning? Examine yourself and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you know that Jesus is in you? But the servants, the ones that see this evidence, they are going to be rewarded with eating, drinking. Uh, they are going to be rewarded with singing for gladness of heart. They're going to have an everlasting name because they answered, they listened, and because they chose what God delights in. And then in verse 17, you're going to be able to see here is the reward. Here's how they're going to eat. This is what it means that they're going to eat, that they're going to drink, that they're going to sing. Verse 17, what's the first word there? Behold. Look at this. Some of your versions say, For behold. In other words, this is the reason why my servants are going to be... This is how they're going to be rewarded. And so verse 17, he says, For behold, I create a new heaven and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. How are they going to eat, drink, sing, and have an everlasting name? It is because they have a new, better, perfect heaven and earth. In other words, there is no more curse in the reward that they get. There is no more sadness or sorrow. There is nothing to weep or gnash teeth over. God creates it all new. See, this is another thing that, that you need to understand. I believe wholeheartedly that we are actually going to be in heaven, but heaven will be on earth. 
I believe it is going to be a new creation, a new earth, a new world like we live in today, only perfect and only better where God walks with us and we see Him face to face and there is nothing but perfect peace in all of His creation. There is a new heaven and a new earth. And it is going to be similar, but not in any way cursed like this one is. I want you to think about it like this. Think about the things that you enjoy most in this life. The things that you love. Maybe for you it's just being with your family. Your kids, your, your grandkids, whatever the case may be. Or, or maybe, maybe it's like me sometimes. I, now, let me say this first. My kids and my wife first, okay? But then, riding a Harley Davidson. Finding a road somewhere that I've never been on and just seeing how far that thing goes. And the worst part about that is when i got to stop. Or maybe for you it's... It's enjoying the creation of fishing, or, or maybe it's out sitting in a tree stand, or maybe it's sports, or maybe, I don't care. You think about the things in your life that you just, you get so much enjoyment out of the things that God has created. And yet I want you to understand something. Even as good as those things are, they are cursed. They are cursed. And yet God gave us all of those things as only glimpses of what it will be like to be in His presence of the ultimate Creator for all eternity. When you pick your newborn baby up or your newborn grandbaby up and you look into their eyes and you hold them in your hands, that joy and that feeling that you feel at that moment, all that is is just an image of the actual Creator of the one that gave it to you. The whole point is for you to look in those eyes and feel that enjoyment and feel that satisfaction and for you to follow the ray of light that it comes from back to the source and you follow that ray of light all the way up to the Creator God and it's meant to lead you to worship. God, as I look at these things I enjoy so much, You are amazing because every bit of it comes from You. And yet as good as all of that is down here, the point of it is that it's still cursed. There will come a day that your kid, you're going to look at it and go, that ain't my kid. <laughs> I don't know whose kid that is, but that ain't my kid. Come on, somebody. Amen? <clears throat> it is cursed as great as it is. It is a cursed image of God and His creative and who He is. And everything God does and creates is to, meant to be a display of His glory. And so when God creates new heavens and new earth, you will get to experience joys and, 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 and excitements like you have never experienced before. And all you've had is little bitty glimpses of what it's going to be like here and now. But it's enough that Paul tells us in Romans that we should look at both the severity of God and the kindness of God. We should look at the severity of God because it causes us to, to, to run away from the things that lead to that severity. And it's meant for us to look at the kindness of God because when we see the kindness of God, it's meant to woo us to Him, to draw us to Him. And so the reward of the servants is a new heaven and a new earth that we have never imagined, has never even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. 
And then next we're going to see that in verse 17 that every tear and every sorrow is wiped away forever. Look what he says at the end. And the former things shall be remembered no more or come into mind. Now, the imagery of wiping away our tears here seems to suggest that God is not just taking away our sorrows, but somehow He's mending it. You remember when you were a kid and you scraped your knee? Where'd you go? And what'd you want mama to do? Kiss it and make it better. And sometimes that's all it took, right? It didn't, mean the, it didn't mean it just went away and you didn't feel that pain, but that sorrow was mended. There was something that was just a consolation that took place. And I really believe that the picture He gives us here is not just that God literally wipes away all the sorrows, but I truly believe that we see our sorrows in this life in such a way that it's all okay. We look at it and we see God's purpose in it. We see what God was doing. We see the glory that God brought from it. We see God's perfect plan. And we still look at those things and every one of our tears move away from sorrow into joy and into gladness because we see the whole purpose of what God was doing. And so our sorrows and our tears are wiped away and the wrongs in our life are all mended and they are all made right. And then in verse 18 through 19 we see the next thing he says... But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Now remember, remember the context. These people are sitting in a destroyed Jerusalem, in a destroyed kingdom of God, right? And God said, I don't want you to still be looking back and thinking about all this stuff that's passing away. How many of you are mourning the shape that America's in today? Don't put your focus on that. Take your focus off of that. You be glad and rejoice in the new heavens and the new earth that I'm going to create. You keep your eyes focused on that. This is the way Paul said that even though he was afflicted in every way, he was not crushed. He said, how do, you, how do I do that? I don't look to the things that are seen, but I look and I focus on the things that are not seen. Y'all remember that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the reason why Paul told the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. He said... If you are in Christ, then seek those things that are above. Set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Why? Because when we set our mind on the reward of the servants, when we set our mind on what God has prepared for those who love Him, for those who answer His call, for those who listen to Him, we don't worry about the things of this world anymore. Our focus is on what's coming. Our focus is on what He has promised. And nothing but joy and gladness in verse 18 and 19 is what He's promised. This is the reason why the psalmist said in Psalm 16 verse 11, He said, In your presence are fullness of joys, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Evermore. He said, there is nothing but joy and gladness in your presence. There is nothing but happiness and rejoicing and singing in your presence. And as a result of that, I put my focus on that and I look forward to that. Look with me uh, at verse 20 where he says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years shall be accursed. Now, I know this is confusing. Because you're thinking, okay, I thought in the new heavens and the new earth, nobody dies. And you're exactly right. But what you need to understand is that 
Isaiah taught us and the Apostle John taught us in Revelation. I think it's Revelation chapter 20. I'll have to find it. Chapter 20, verse 4. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Look at this. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And I saw those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for how long? So here we're looking at the thousand year millennium reign of Jesus on this earth. And this is going to be a time to where still sinful human beings follow Him in, but Jesus literally reigns as King over this kingdom for a thousand years. If you were to keep reading in Revelation, you also find out that after this thousand years is over, Satan is actually released for just a period of time. And he leads one more rebellion. But during this time, this is where the new heavens and the new earth begin. Why? Because Jesus is literally King over it all. And during this time, we're going to have people that come into this that are still in sin. That are still, but the difference is going to be, it's going to be reversed like it was prior to the flood. You remember back when we read about people like Methuselah that lived to be how old? This is why Moses talked about in Psalm chapter 90, or 91 I believe it is, is one of those, uh, Psalm 90. He talked about that even if you live to be a thousand years like they used to live, it's still just a short temporary amount of time. But the point being is that the new heavens and the new earth are going to begin with long life. Long life. To the point that even the sinner will die a curse at a hundred years old. And then to the point that even the one that lives to be a thousand years old, he will still die. And then after this thousand year reign is over, then he is going to spend his days never dying again. And that's the point. The point is there will be long life and eternal life for those. And we're going to be fitted with a body that will live forever. Look at one, look at one last scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 through 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. This is the new body that we get. And look at verse 43. It is sown in dishonor, this body. Why? Because it's a sinner. It's a sinful body. But it is raised in glory. Why? Because it ain't a sinful body no more. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. In verse 44. It is sown a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body, still a body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So the point being is that the Bible teaches us that in this new heaven and new earth, we're going to be fitted with a body that will be able in the millennium reign to live up to a thousand years. And then we're going to be fitted with a body after that that will live throughout all eternity, and it will never experience pain or suffering in any capacity. And then in verse 20, or I'm sorry, in verse 21, we see the peace and security in this place. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For, the, for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Yes, there's going to be work in heaven, folks. Let me tell you about the good news, though. 
It ain't labor. There's a big difference in work and labor. Y'all know that, right? There is work in heaven, but it's a good work. It's a fruitful work. It's a work that always produces. How many of y'all can't grow nothing? Put a seed in the ground and ain't nothing going to come up. You ain't going to be like that in heaven. Every work of your hands that you put your hand to, it will produce everything you mean it to produce. The creation will work with you instead of bracing itself against you. And then in verse um, 23, They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. For before they call, I will answer. You see what that is? God is continually with them, walking with them, listening to them. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And then the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. You got two choices this morning. Rebels or servants. Rebels reap eternal, unimaginable, justifiable suffering and torment. That's what's waiting on you. And the only reason it's there is because you didn't answer when God called, you didn't listen to His Word, and you did not follow Him by faith. Or, today is the day of salvation for servants of God. And if you will answer His call this morning, recognize that yes, I choose my own ways. I walk in paths that God does not delight in. I do not listen to His Word. I do not seek Him in His Word. But I forsake Him and I follow my own path. If that's you this morning, can I just be honest with you and tell you, you have just examined yourself and you are not in the faith. But the good news is that Christ Jesus would call you home today. Because one of the things that Jesus does is He turns rebels into servants. You say, Preacher, how do you know? I know. I know. I would hate for you to leave here today and not put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. If God is calling you this morning, now is your time to answer. To say, Lord, I hear you. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're a servant, but you like David or Moses or Noah and you have found yourself back in choosing things that God does not delight in. If you are a servant, the Lord is wearing you out right now. And there's no better time than for you to humble yourself before Him, to cry out to Him, to say, Lord, I'm coming home. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to choose what you delight in. But you better believe one thing is true. If He's calling you, you have the responsibility to answer. And if you don't follow that responsibility to answer, you will pay the consequence of being hungry, of being thirsty, of being crying out for pain, wailing for pain of spirit, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you will be justified in receiving that because that is what you decided.